0: Well, friends, if you were to ask a typical Christian, what do you think the Bible is about? What is the main message of the Bible? I think many Christians, maybe even many of you in the past, would say it's about salvation. And you would not be very wrong. The Bible is, is massively about salvation, about God's plan of redemption. But as we have seen, that's not the ultimate theme of the Bible. Rather, redemption is a means to a, a greater end that greater end being the kingdom of God. God is the creator of all things. And as such, he is the ruler, owner of all things, and, and therefore he is the rightful ruler over everything. And the ultimate goal toward which everything is headed is the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God began in the garden where the man and the woman were God's people in God's place under God's rule. But because of our... Sin, we've rebelled against God, taken ourselves out from under his rulership. And from Genesis 3.15 on, the entire story of the Bible is about God restoring his kingdom and his rulership over the world. A large part of the Old Testament, as you know, has to do with God's working in one nation, the nation of Israel. It was to them he manifested his presence in the Old Testament, they were the ones who were to represent him in the world. And out of Israel would come the ultimate seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Jesus Christ. And God begins by establishing his rulership over Israel by mediating it through the leadership of Moses. Moses, the, the one who led the people out of bondage in Egypt and through whom God gave his people the law. Moses was succeeded by another great leader, Joshua. And Joshua uh, through Joshua, God led the people into the promised land. But then when Joshua died, it created a, a void in Israel. There was a vacuum of leadership. And so we came to the book of judges where without a king, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And God raised up these many saviors called judges who were military and civil and, and spiritual leaders. The last judge was Samuel. And Samuel was more than a judge. He was the first of a line of prophets, national prophets in Israel. And it was as Samuel's life was coming to an end, this great leader, successor to Moses and Joshua, that the people realized that his sons were not godly and we're going to be without leadership. And so they began to clamor for a king. Now, that was not wrong for them to do. Remember from Deuteronomy 17, God predicted that his people would have a king. He only warned them about the kind of king that they should have. And so the desire for a king in itself was not wrong. What was wrong is the reason they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the nations. Now, the nations had kings, but they did not have Yahweh as king. And the problem with Israel's demand was they didn't want a king to reign under Yahweh, but really they wanted a king to reign in the place of Yahweh. The first king that is anointed in Israel is Saul. And today we're going to talk about Saul. We're, I'm trying to give one message per book of the Bible, but I said that with First and Second Samuel, I'm going to give three messages, one on each of the dominant figures in those books. Samuel, last time, Saul, and then David. This morning, Saul. Saul was a failed king. And what I want to do in this message is unpack... For you, his failure by noting seven sins of Saul and contrasting those sins with the virtues of the true king, Jesus Christ. Now, early on, there are some indicators that would lead us to think that Saul might have been a good king and a blessing to Israel. He's described in a way that looked kingly. He's described in this way He was a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. And he was a full head taller than everyone else. He certainly looked kingly upon meeting Samuel for the first time and being honored by Samuel at a banquet and pre- preparation for Saul being privately anointed. Saul appears humble. He, he's being honored and he says, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak to me in this way? There's there's no bravado there. There's no sense of entitlement. There appears to be humility in Saul. When he departs from Samuel after the private anointing, he falls in with a group of prophets, and we read the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. It also said God changed his heart. Now, we must not mistake that for regeneration. His subsequent life reveals he was not regenerated but it's an encouraging sign. When he was first inaugurated as king, certain worthless men despised him and said, how can this one deliver us? But to his credit, it says Saul was silent. He wasn't filled with prideful vengeance and retaliation. And when the people of Jabesh-Gilead were oppressed by Ammonites who cruelly um, threatened to blind the eye of every man so as to subjugate those people, It says, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. He mustered the troops, and God gave a resounding victory. So at the start of of Saul's reign, it seems promising. It seems hopeful. Maybe he will be a good king and a blessing to Israel. But then there's a sudden downturn. And what we're going to see and highlight are the particular sins of Saul that made for a failed kingship, at least in the eyes of God. And then I want to contrast his failures the virtues of the king that he foreshadows, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at seven sins in Saul's life and ministry. First, and majorly, King Saul disobedience to the word of God. In 1 Samuel 13, the Israelites are facing the Philistine army. And Saul had been told by Samuel in chapter 10, verse 8, wait for me to come. And I will show you what you are to do. But Saul does not wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice, but he presumes to do it himself. And so we read in 1 Samuel 13, 8 and following, now he waited seven days. Now, apparently he did not wait the full seven days. Now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "'Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings.' And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, "'What have you done?' And Saul said, "'Because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, "'Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord.' So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering." Now listen to Samuel, the prophet of God. Samuel said to Saul, you will have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And that man, of course, who would succeed him was David. So we see Saul's disobedience to the word of God. Samuel was the approved prophet of God. To disobey Samuel was to disobey God. And that's what Saul did. Turn over a couple chapters later to chapter 15. And here Israel under Saul is facing the Amalekites. And these are the instructions given by the prophet Samuel to Saul. Listen to 15, to 3, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The instructions are clear as to what Saul is to do. He is to put them under the ban. He is to exterminate every person and every animal. Now listen to verses 7 to 9. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But, significant but, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroy. Now I ask you rhetorically, did Saul obey the command? No, he did not totally exterminate all those animals. And so what follows is Samuel's indictment of Saul. I'll read just part of the passage, beginning of verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel then comes to Saul. And Saul, in a jaunty way, says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? Wait wait a minute. You are supposed to destroy all the animals. Why am I hearing the sheep and the oxen? And then Saul proceeds to make excuses as to why the people did this. And Samuel comes in verse 11 and says, He has, well, the Lord has said to him, he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. When Saul defends himself by preserving some of the animals to sacrifice, Samuel comes with these well-known words, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In verse 23, what Saul did, his actions are equated to rebellion, divination, which is witchcraft, insubordination, iniquity, and idolatry. What we see at bottom is that Saul's heart was a disobedient heart. His will was never submitted to the will of God. Dale, Ralph Davis says, All the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar will, would never replace the pleasure God would have had from the living sacrifice of Saul's will. So Saul's first sin, and it is a major one, it causes him to lose the kingdom. He was disobedient to the word of God. In contrast, what does the Bible say about the Lord Jesus, the ultimate king, the king we need, the perfect king? Over and over again, we hear this refrain, John 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6 and verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus, as he wraps up his ministry, and he gives his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I glorified you on on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Saul was disobedient to the command of God. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed the law of God. And friends, he did that on our behalf. He kept the law, which we could not keep, so that we would be spared the punishment for the broken law. Saul, a disobedient king. Jesus, the perfectly obedient king. But secondly, we see King Saul prideful, self-centered egoism. And this follows upon his disobedience to God. I've said many times that when it comes to worship, we really have only two choices. Either we worship the creator God, or we worship the creature. And as someone else has said, man's creature of choice is always himself. When people choose gods, little g gods to worship, they choose them as to how they will serve themselves. We create God in our own image. We create a God that we want to serve ourselves. So you either worship the true God, the creator God, or you worship yourself as the creature. One writer, Will Metzger, says that we fight God and we play God. So while Saul had no will to obey God, we see the prideful, self-centered egoism and self-worship in Saul. Saul. In chapter 13, Israel's facing the Philistines and Saul had uh, disobeyed by not waiting for Samuel. Samuel then departs, which is sad because with him goes the word of God and the presence of God. So Saul is left there bereft of God, but still facing the Philistines as an enemy. Now, many of his troops have scattered from him. He has only 600 men left. And um, they were very, very disadvantaged. We read in the text that the Philistines, their enemies, had a, a monopoly on the blacksmith industry. And so the Israelites didn't have the swords and spears that they needed to fight. And so Paul is at a military disadvantage, and um, he's very concerned. Now, as an aside, when we come to chapter 14, we read that Saul's son, Jonathan, who was a godly man, close friend of David, right? Jonathan won a signal victory against the Philistines. Led by the Lord, he went up to the Philistine camp only with his armor bearer. He slew 20 Philistines, and then God undertook on his behalf to cr- produce a trembling in the Philistine camp. The earthquake And the multitude melted away, and we read in 1423, so the Lord delivered Israel that day. Jonathan, Saul's son, won this great victory by the the power of God. Now, all that was without Saul knowing it. While Jonathan is doing that, here is Saul concerned about the enemy and ill-equipped to fight them, and we see him making this rash vow. And listen to the wording of this. 1424, Now the men of Israel, the soldiers, were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. His men were weary, they were fighting, and now he's saying, "You, You dare not taste any food until, now notice the language, I myself avenge myself of my enemies. What a contrast to King David. When King David came up against the Philistine giant, what were his words? What was his heart? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? David's zeal was for God's glory. Saul is concerned about his own reputation. My enemies. I will avenge myself against my enemies. For Saul, he's all about himself. One commentator calls this Saul's vainglorious vow and says this. Let his men sweat, bleed, and die. No, let them starve as well and drop dead of exhaustion. For he, Saul, must have his victory. Jonathan Unaware of the oath that Saul had put the people under, in his weariness, found some honey, and on the end of a stick, he tasted some honey, violating the oath. And Saul, in his self-centeredness, was willing to kill his own son. Oh, before I, before I mention that, let me mention this. What effect did Saul's self-centeredness have on the people, having put them under that, that very restrictive oath? Verse 36, Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. And then in verse 37, we read, Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. And then verse 40, Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. What I call your attention to is they were disgusted with his pride. It's like in our day, people say, whatever. Will you do this? He's trying to give them instruction as a leader. Whatever, Saul. Do what you're going to do. Because he had oppressed them. And then when Jonathan eats that honey... Saul is actually willing to kill his own son. And we read in verse 44, Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul's prideful, self-centered egoism. And this is the ugly fruit of pride. The Lord resists the proud. Saul has been abandoned by God. He calls upon the Lord. The Lord does not answer why. Peter says God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Pride also produces disgust in those who are the brunt of it. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. whatever. Do whatever you think, Saul. And pride can also lead to extra-biblical legalism. Saul made them swear an oath that was not of God. It was beyond what God had said, what God had commanded. Gordon Ketty, British commentator, picks up on this and he says, There ought to be no heaping of extra-biblical rules and regulations upon anybody supposedly in the name of the Lord. God has spoken in his word. Scripture alone is the sufficient rule for faith and life. Adding to scripture creates new and actually fictitious sins. But sad to say, the evil effects upon the victims are far from fictitious. Saul was adding to the word of God. He put them under an oath that God had not commanded, and it was oppressive to the people. On another occasion, we see Saul's self-centeredness. There's the victory over the Amalekites when Saul... Uh, was told to put everything under the ban, and he spared the king and the best animals. And the interesting thing is he actually thinks he has obeyed the Lord. Samuel comes to him, and he says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Here's another result of pride. Pride has a blinding effect on the proud. It's not without reason that one of the Greek words in the New Testament for pride is tufao. That means to wrap in a mist, to be beclouded, blinded. And that's what pride does. Pride has a blinding effect. Saul also sets up a monument to himself, 1512. So we see Saul's self-centered egoism. Now contrast that to the king we all need. Jesus Jesus is the antithesis of that. Mark 10:45, "The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, a ransom for many." Peter describes Jesus' ministry to the household of Cornelius in this way, in this way, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. Jesus was the consummate man for others. In Matthew 11 far from oppressing the people as the Pharisees did, as Saul did, oppressing them with this unreasonable oath for his own ego's sake. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest to your souls. Saul was an oppressive king. Jesus is a king who relieves us of oppression. Here's a third sin of Saul, King Saul, people-pleasing, face-saving fear of man. In chapter 15, again, we have that Amalekite battle in which Saul fails to carry out the ban, but he preserves alive the king and some of the livestock. And Samuel confronts him, and we read in 15, 20, and 21, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, And went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I obeyed, but the people. And then we read in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. And then again in verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul had the fear of man. Proverbs 29:25 says, the fear of man brings a snare He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man is putting the opinions of people above what God knows to be true. It's to be a people pleaser. The excellent commentator Dale Ralph Davis says this, Saul's words seem to expose his own priority as if he had said, there is sin, but there's also politics. It would be suicidal for me to have an open rift with Samuel. Hence, it is vital to keep up appearances. The problem is not that Saul's concern is unfounded, but that it is so dominant. What really matters is retaining the esteem of men. The support of men is more crucial than reconciliation with God. What he is most anxious about is that he should not appear dishonored before the people. It is his own reputation that concerns him. And the other commentator, Gordon Ketty, says this. This was the repentance of a man who was afraid of losing everything and not least of losing his standing with the people. The bogus character of his contrition is further confirmed by his concern that the prophet helped him save face with the people. Even after that stern restatement of God's displeasure, he desperately pleaded with Samuel to honor him before the elders. Yeah, I've sinned, but, but please honor me. Saul was one who was a people pleaser. He had face-saving fear of man. Compare that to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus had a mind single to pleasing his father. He did not give in to the fear of man. On one occasion, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, the Pharisees were offended by what you said. Remember Jesus' response? Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted, uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. I've spoken the truth. I've spoken it in love. It doesn't matter what they think. And Jesus never allowed the agendas of men to derail him from his marching orders from his father. Remember, as we studied the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, Jesus late into the night had been healing people, casting out demons. Early in the morning, he gets up, he goes to be with his father, and the disciples come after him to bring him back. Lord, there's still people to be healed, still people to be exorcised of demons. And Jesus says, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came for. I'm following my father's agenda. And I will not be bullied by the plans that other people have for me. Saul feared the people and pleased the people, concerned about his own ego, his own reputation, his own appearance, saving face. Jesus had one concern, and that was to please God his Father and let the chips fall where they may. It will please some people. It will displease some people but the only thing that matters is pleasing my father. And because that was his agenda and his resolve, he went all the way to the cross and purchased our redemption. Here's a fourth thing of seven in Saul. Saul's fierce and consuming jealousy. After Saul was rejected by the Lord, the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. That of course was David. And David was anointed by Samuel, but it was a long road to David actually assuming the throne in in reality. And during that time, we see the ascendancy of David and the decline of Saul. We read in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, these two statements juxtaposed, put next to each other. The Spirit of God came mightily upon David from that day forward. The next verse... Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Spirit of God coming upon Saul, an evil spirit dominating Saul. Now Saul's servants had a solution to this terror by the demons. It wasn't the solution Saul needed, like repent, Saul, and get right with God. Their solution was to find a skillful harp player, to calm Saul during these demonic attacks. David is discovered, recommended, and he's described as a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. David is then sent for, comes to Saul, plays for Saul. And we read in 1621, Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And that plan worked. For a time, David's playing and David's perhaps godly presence really did cause the evil spirit to depart. What follows, David being there in Saul's presence, he learns about the challenge from Goliath, from the Philistines, and of course what follows is that great story of David's defeat of Goliath out of zeal for God's glory. And as a result of that, Saul sets David over his army, and sends him out on various military missions, and David becomes a national hero. Listen to some of the statements about David's ascendancy. 18.5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, literally acted wisely. 18.14, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. 18.30, David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. And three times in that chapter, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And David was loved. Jonathan's heart, Saul's sons Jonathan's heart, was knit to David. Jonathan loved David. But it says in eighteen sixteen, but all Israel and Judah loved David. And even Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. Everyone loved David except Saul. Why? Because after David's victory... The women of Israel came out of all the cities of Israel, quote, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. Literally, it was evil in his eyes. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now, these women intended no slight. They were intending to honor Saul. But in the process, he was upstaged by David. And that rankled him. That filled him with jealous wrath. They're saying, David has slain uh, Saul. I've slain my thousands. But David, his ten thousands? And from that time on, Saul was enraged with jealousy toward David. He was consumed with fierce jealousy of David. Now, I want to compare that to the Lord Jesus. You know, in the Greek language, the same word, zelos, is translated zeal and jealousy. It all depends on the context. What's the difference between that sinful jealousy that's all had and a holy zeal? Well, in both cases, they're seeing something good. But in the case of sinful jealousy, you're seeing something good in someone else, but resent that it's in them and not you. And so you want to destroy it. You want to tear it down because you're jealous that they have something that you don't have. That was Saul's sinful jealousy toward David. Zeal, on the other hand, is to see something good in someone else and to want to promote it because it's something that God is doing. Saul was filled with sinful, wrathful jealousy. Our Lord Jesus was filled with holy zeal. Remember when he came into the temple? And he made a whip of cords and he overturned the tables and the money clanged on the floor and the animals went out. And what do we read? That he was fulfilling Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was filled with a zeal for his father's house. Why? Because his father's house represented his father's presence. It represented his father's law, which was contained in the Ark of the Covenant. It even represented his father's gospel because the temple was a place where sacrifices were made. And Jesus burned with a holy zeal for what God was doing. So Saul was jealous with a selfish jealousy and warred against what God was doing through David. Jesus was zealous with a holy zeal that promoted what his father was doing on the earth. Number five of seven, King Saul's deadly persecution of God's people. If I were to ask you, what do you think about King Saul? Many of you have been Christians long enough. You've read the Old Testament. You've read the narrative. You've read about Saul. Perhaps words like vile, wicked, reprobate, God-hating may not come to your mind. They may not be the first words you use. Because in one sense, Saul is a a pitiable character, but friends— The raw wickedness of Saul comes out most clearly here as we see him as a deadly persecutor of God's people. On more than one occasion, he throws a spear at David, aiming to kill him. At one point where he's going to give his daughter Michal to David, he says, I'll give you my daughter, but you need to kill 100 Philistines. And that was a ploy, thinking, well, the Philistines will do my work for me. The Philistines, I mean, to kill a 100 men, surely he's, he's not going to do that. They're going to do him in. And then Saul becomes the rabid hunter and David his prey as David flees from the jealous wrath of Saul. Only the amazing providences of God deliver David time and again. David on more than one occasion, dared not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed Saul, even though Saul was a rejected king. But Saul had no hesitation about lifting up his hand and trying to kill the Lord's true anointed. On one occasion, Saul wrongly believes that the priest, Ahimelech, has given aid to David. And Ahimelech was very unwitting about that. It was very innocent. And as a result of, of that suspicion that this priest had, uh, had aided and abetted David, Saul comes in, he destroys the entire city of the priest, Nob, killing men, women, children, and infants with the sword. And through his henchman, Doeg, he has 85 men killed who wore the linen ephod, priests of the Lord. This leads Dale Ralph Davis to say this, Antichrist's characteristic passion is to crush and destroy God's people. And Saul proves himself a scale model antichrist here. He vents his fury on the priests of Yahweh, Yahweh's designated servants and representatives of his people. He annihilates a village of Israel as though it were one of Yahweh's enemies. Then he says, here is Saul, destroyer of Israel. And then he lumps Saul in with other antichrists, Pharaoh, Balak and Balaam, Jezebel, Athaliah. Haman and Antiochus Epiphanes. And then David says, Saul becomes one of a legion of antichrists who have always vented their spleen on the Lord's servants. King Saul's deadly persecution of God's people. Well, compare him to Jesus. Far from being a persecutor of God's people, Jesus was the ultimate persecuted one, right? He is called the suffering servant in Isaiah. And he suffered at the hands of the Saul's of his day, the Pharisees, who persecuted him unto death. And whereas the Lord was pleased to spare um, David at the hands of Saul, he did not allow Saul to kill David. The Lord God did allow the persecutors of Jesus to put him to death. The Lord, it says in Isaiah 53, was pleased to crush him. And so King Saul hated God's true people and persecuted them. King Jesus so loved God's people that he gave himself to the persecutors to the point of death in order to save them, us. Well, number six of seven, King Saul's worldly sorrow, short of true repentance As we read this inspired biography of King Saul, one of the strains that is hard to miss is the occasional expression of of regret and remorse that that oozes from him, at times with apparent sincerity. And this is what elicits from us a sense of pity and and sympathy for this man. Let me um, pull out some of those for you. In chapter 15 and verse 24, after Samuel rebukes him, because he did not carry out the ban. He did not destroy all the animals. Um, 15, 24, Saul says, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words. But a few verses later, he says, I have sinned. But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. When David spared Saul's life in the cave, remember, he could have killed him, but instead he cut off a piece of his robe. And, and David had such a sensitive conscience, even that made him feel guilty, right? And then he comes and he shows Saul, look, I got a piece of your, your, your robe. I could have killed you. And on that occasion, Saul gushes with these words, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me. while I have dealt wickedly with you. But he continues to hunt David down. And then on another occasion... When David could have killed Saul, Saul was sleeping in the open air, and he took his spear as proof that, you know, I had access. I could have driven that spear through your heart. I could have killed you. And then on that occasion, when David says, look, I've got your spear. I could have killed you. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. What are we to make of Saul's confessions, his tears, his acknowledgement of David's righteousness and his own foolishness? I think you're probably ahead of me and you know where to go in your Bible, don't you? 2 Corinthians 7.10, where the apostle Paul says, there is more than one kind of sorrow for sin. There's a sorrow according to God that leads to repentance. That's the sense I've sinned against God and I repent toward God, and it leads to salvation. But there's another kind of sorrow, a sorrow according to the world, a worldly sorrow that has nothing to do with God. I'm sorry for the consequences. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm even sorry for some of the guilt it's producing. But that is not true repentance. I think I'll take the time. We don't have much more to go to read from Gordon Ketty's. Commentary on this in his book. The point is that there's a difference between godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, and worldly sorrow that brings death. Saul's sorrow was of the worldly unrepentant variety. It was the honesty of hell that made his tears flow. There's a reluctant realism in the reprobate lost here and in hell. Lost sinners in hell know what lostness means. Their agony is only compounded by their undying hatred for the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Their sorrow is real, but they have made a covenant with the very cause of that sorrow and are in agreement with Sheol. Saul could not bring himself to true repentance. He had set his face against the Lord. His confession, said Matthew Henry, was sufficient to prove David innocent, even his enemy himself being the judge, but not enough to prove Saul himself as a true penitent. David's grace-filled witness brought Saul as near to repentance and saving faith as a sinner can come without actually being converted. But for all the weeping and the recognition of the consequences of his spiritual state and manner of life, Saul was still committed to his own way. He was never evangelized more winsomely than by David on that day, but he held to his eternally suicidal course anyway. Compare that to Jesus. You say, well, how do you compare Jesus in the area of repentance? He had no sin. He had nothing to repent of. Ah, but remember, Jesus submitted to the baptism of John. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And when Jesus came for that baptism, John was baptizing repenters. And when Jesus came to him, John said, oh, no, 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 not you. And Jesus said, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, And so Jesus submitted to the sinner's ordinance of baptism. Why? To identify with us, because he would become sin for us. And then finally, regarding Saul's sins, we have King Saul's empty hypocritical orthodoxy. The final sin I point you to is the fact that Saul had a persistent but hollow religiosity, He was a man rejected by God who knew his heart and knew it was not an obedient, submissive heart. It was rebellious and self-willed. It was a devilish heart. And yet Saul continues with a veneer of religiosity. When Saul disobeyed the command of Samuel to wait for him for direction, and Saul proceeded with the sacrifice himself, his excuse, according to 13 and 12, was this. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Davis comments for Saul, sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. Because of Saul's oppressive vow, which forbade the people to eat, the people when they finally did eat. They were so ravenously hungry that they ate meat with blood. And and Saul says, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, each of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. I mean, he's so concerned about violating this ceremonial law. When Samuel comes to Saul after Saul disobeys the command to carry out the ban, but he preserves Agag and the best animals, his excuse for not exterminating everything, according to 1521 was, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord. Saul, despite his rebellion against God, is incurably religious. He continues to use God talk and talk about the Lord, even when he confesses sins to David. Oh, bless you, David. David. And he's using God talk. But the crowning act of Saul's hypocrisy is at the end of his life. We're told in chapter 28 that he had banned from the kingdom all mediums and spiritists because it was contrary to the law of God in Leviticus 19.31. He removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. But in his desperation... In being challenged by the Philippians, he needed to talk to Samuel who had died. What does he do? He disguises himself and actually goes to one of those mediums that he had banned from the land. Gordon Ketty says, The Spirit of God had ceased to strive with Saul. He was left to himself. And in his wicked desperation, he turned to the dark world of spiritism. He then calls Saul's subsequent action the most bare-faced hypocrisy And apostasy. Dale Ralph Davis comments For all his degeneration, Saul is orthodox to the last. Tragic end to a tragic life. I end by noting the comparison with Jesus. Jesus and hypocrisy. What was Jesus' relationship to hypocrisy? Jesus hated hypocrisy. (laughs) His worst enemies were not the tax collectors and the prostitutes. His worst enemies were religious hypocrites. And he condemned them, especially in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That sounds like Saul's religion straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Israel needed a king. The whole world needs a king. Saul, the first king of Israel, was not the king Israel needed. He was a failed king, but he does point forward to the king we all need, and by the grace of God we all have, Jesus Christ, our victorious king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what Saul illustrates to us, the very antithesis of what and who you are, Lord Jesus, and how thankful we are that you are a better king. You are a perfect king. You are the antithesis of this evil antichrist king. You are Christ, our king. And we gladly welcome your rule over our lives because it is a gracious and kind rule. And we thank you for it. in your name.